welcome to the weekly podcast of Covenant Grace Menifee. Each week, we gather to better understand the teachings of the Bible and how to live them out in our daily lives. We hope and pray that you're encouraged by this week's message. Exodus 19, starting in verse 1. On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain, while Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. All the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud, that the people may hear when I speak with you, and may also believe you forever. When Moses told the words of the people to the Lord, the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow, and let them wash their garments, and be ready for the third day. For on the third day the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people, and you shall set limits for the people all around, saying, Take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall be stoned or shot. Whether beast or man, he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people and consecrated the people, and they washed their garments. And he said to the people, Be ready for the third day. Do not go near a woman. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast, so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down and warn the people, lest they break through to the Lord to look, and many of them perish. Also let the priests come near to the Lord, consecrate themselves, lest the Lord break out against them. And Moses said to the Lord, The people cannot come up to Mount Sinai, for you yourself warned us, saying, Set limits around the mountain and consecrate it. And the Lord said to him, Go down and come up, bringing Aaron with you. But do not let the priests and the people break through to come up to the Lord, lest he break out against them. So Moses went down to the people and told them. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, 
visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor, you shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled, and they stood far off. And they said to Moses, You speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. Moses said to the people, Do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we're, uh, we're in awe of the vision of you on that mountain. Lord, we, we see your great holiness. We see your unapproachable majesty in this passage. And then as we read your law in Exodus 20, we see why. We see that we're sinners. Lord, we confess this morning that we have done things that ought not to be done and left undone things that should be done, and that there is no health in us, in ourselves. We know, Lord, that we bring nothing to the table that would make us able to approach you. We see in this passage that not even the priests could come on the mountain. Lord, we are a sinful people, but we come before you in the name of Jesus Christ. We come by the blood of Jesus Christ. And we're welcomed into your presence. We're so thankful for that, Lord, that knowing Jesus Christ, being in Christ, we don't have to tremble at the foot of the mountain, but we're welcome to the top to be with you. We pray, Lord, as we open your word and we just see, get more insight into the Mosaic Covenant, we just pray, Lord, that it would help us to more and more be thankful for what we have in your son, Jesus Christ. We love you, Lord. We pray that we would love you more. We pray that you give us the desire of our hearts that we would be holy yours. We pray this in Jesus' name. All God's people said, amen. So we're in this Advent series on the covenants. A little bit of a nerdy series, I know. But we're going through the different covenants. Covenants are promises. God, throughout the Old Testament, has made promises through multiple people. Uh, You can see on your invite cards, you can see the different people. So down here is to Adam, to Noah, to Abraham, and then we're here to Moses over here. You see the Ten Commandments. On the day after Christmas, we'll look at the covenant made to David, and then the first Sunday of the year, we'll look at the new covenant. And so God made covenant promises to different people throughout the Old Testament, and we're seeing in this series how all these covenants point forward to Jesus, point forward to Christ and Christmas. And one of the benefits of doing this, guys, is we're actually getting kind of a little bit of an overview of the Old Testament. I know some of you guys, this is your first time at church, you've only been 
coming maybe for a few months. And for you, it's been really eye-opening because it's like, wow, look at this. Like, I'm seeing how Christ works through the Old Testament. I'm seeing some of what happened before Christ. And if that's kind of piqued your interest in how to find Christ in the Old Testament, we've got five copies of this book for free. So if one of you, five of you, would be interested in reading this book, and I don't mean making this like a decoration. I mean like in the next two or three weeks, you'd actually read the book. Then we'd love for you to get a copy of this. I'm going to give it to JC. I'm going to set it here. JC's the guy to come to. He's right here. He's the one that did call to worship. He'll do communion. And we'd love for you to take it. You don't have to bring it back. Enjoy it. But what it is, is Jesus on Every Page by David Murray, 10 Simple Ways to Seek and Find Christ in the Old Testament. It's a really enjoyable book. I mean, you'll see how to see Christ, not just through the covenants, but see Christ in the sacrifices, see Christ in the book of Proverbs, see Christ in the Psalms. It's a really thrilling thing to see Jesus on every page. So we'd love for you to take that. If you'll read it, go up to JC and he'll, if he tries to charge you anything for these, you know, just remind him I said it was free. You know, I know we've had problems with that before. Not with JC, but, you know, with others that we've had do this. No, I'm just kidding. We haven't had a problem with that. So the covenants are really the backbone of the grand story that God's telling in the Old Testament. And I think you guys have seen by now that the covenants are not God doing like trial and error, you know? It's not like God's trying different things. Like he tried the garden. He went, okay, you know, just don't eat this. And, and other than that, you, you can eat everything. And then, you know, Adam sins and he goes, oh, I didn't see that coming. Okay, well, let's try this, you know, and you know, the Mosaic Covenant's another thing he tries, and that doesn't work, so he tries another thing, and finally Jesus comes. That's not what's going on here, guys. I hope you're seeing that in this series. These covenants are all going somewhere. They're all building on each other. They're all beautifully interconnected, which I'm going to show you in a little bit. But one of the things we can learn from this, guys, is that because there is a God ruling over this world who works through covenant promises, this world is not random. This world is not random. If you live in a world, if you believe you live in a world with no God, then this world is random and meaningless. And there's really no way out of that. Very much smarter people than us have tried to figure out how you could have meaning with no God. And it turns out it entirely evaporates. It is a random, meaningless world if there is no God. It's not, you know, you hear commonly in culture, people say things like, you know, I know everything happens for a reason. But if there's no God, nothing happens for a reason. Nothing happens for a reason. But guys, the good news is this morning, you do not live in that kind of world. You live in a world that's governed by a God who makes and keeps promises. And this world, guys, is a, a grand story being crafted by a loving genius for his glory and for your joy, if you trust in Jesus Christ. And so history, both the world's history and your personal history, is a grand story being told by God, not on paper, but through people. And, um, and that's super good news. So where are we at in the covenants? Well, last week, Josh uh, taught on the covenant that God made with Abraham. This morning, we're going to look at the covenant that God made with Moses is 430 years later. God promised to Abraham that he would give him a place, promised land. He'd give him a people, and he would be, his presence would go with them. And so Abraham had a son named Isaac. Isaac had a son named Jacob. Jacob had 12 sons. There's a song about this. One of the sons, Joseph, uh, was sold into slavery. He goes into slavery he works his way up. He becomes really powerful in Egypt. He's actually able to save God's people from a famine. That's people all move into Egypt and are fed there because Joseph was there ahead of time. But they don't stay free citizens there, right? Over the next 400 years, they become enslaved. Their numbers grow exponentially, but they're not free citizens in that land. They become enslaved. Uh, The Pharaoh there enslaves them. He institutes a program of genocide 
killing off the infant sons. And, and you might, at that point, in the beginning of the book of Exodus, you might be thinking like God's people were, what's happened to God's promise to Abraham? You know? That's what they would be thinking in the beginning of, of Exodus. They'd be thinking, what has happened to God's promise to Abraham? What happened to the people he promised? What happened to the, the place, the land he promised? What happened to his presence? And so God sends Moses into Egypt to free them from bondage. And what's really cool is when he does that, he tells Moses that he's specifically doing this to fulfill his covenant promise to Abraham. Take a look at Exodus 6. Exodus 6, 3. It says, God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob as God Almighty, but not by my name, the Lord, did I make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groanings of my people Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I've remembered my covenant. Let's talk about the Abrahamic covenant. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord. I will bring you out from under the burden of the Egyptians. I will deliver you from slavery to them. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. And so God sends Moses to, to free his people from the burden under Pharaoh. He tells Pharaoh to let the people go. Famously, Pharaoh won't let them go. Then there's a series of plagues, right? There's a series of plagues until finally Pharaoh relents and lets the people go. That last plague, you guys remember what it was? The last plague was the death of the firstborn. So God sends a, a plague to, to kill all the firstborn males in every household. Before he does it, though, he tells God's people to slaughter a lamb and put the blood on the doorposts. And he promises them that if they do that, then he'll pass over in his judgment, not judge those particular homes. So when the plague of death of the firstborn comes, God spares the homes that are covered in the blood of the lamb. He passes over, and that's where we get the term Passover from. It's God passed over them. He did not judge them because of the blood of the lamb. That last plague, the death of the firstborn, causes Pharaoh to finally let him go. Of course, Pharaoh, once he lets him go, he realizes, like, I'm letting perfectly good slaves go. This is really bad business. And so he pursues them. They come to the Red Sea. They look backed in. God parts the sea. God's people cross over. And then when the Egyptians try, he covers the sea. And all of Pharaoh's uh, army are drowned in the sea. This is a long story, huh? I've got to tell you all the background. After that, Israel comes to Mount Sinai. And that's where we are, where Christina was reading in Exodus 19. We've arrived at Mount Sinai where God makes this covenant promise, the Mosaic covenant, to give the law to his people. Now, this would be a good time to step back. I've got a diagram. This would be a good time to step back and just think about where this covenant fits with all the other covenants. So the covenants actually interlock in a really beautiful way. And I don't have all the covenants here, but I have the covenant of grace. We saw that was instituted Genesis 3.15 when he promised the seed of the woman would come to crush the head of the serpent and deliver everybody from Satan. So that's uh, the, the covenant of grace. And then we saw last week the uh, Abrahamic covenants, Genesis 15, when God made certain promises to Abraham. And then now, this morning, we're at the Mosaic covenant, so Exodus 19. And what's cool about this diagram is it, it shows you a couple of things. Notice that the covenant of grace runs all the way from Genesis 3.15 to now. Okay, There's one covenant of grace. There's one way to have been saved all throughout 
uh, Old Testament, New Testament, everybody that's been saved has been saved by the Messiah promise in Genesis 3.15 through the covenant of grace. Last week, Josh talked about the Abrahamic covenant. The Abrahamic covenant's right here. It starts in Genesis 15, and it is a outworking of the covenant of grace. These aren't really different covenants. They're highly related. Abrahamic covenant is a kind of a manifestation of the covenant of grace, and that's why I put this dotted line here, so you can kind of go between them. You can change lines. But, um, but these are one covenant. So you see the Abrahamic covenant starting here. What we're going to do this morning is we're going to look at this part, which is the first stage of the Abrahamic covenant. So this is all Abrahamic covenant. You've got old covenant is the first part, Mosaic covenant. Second part is the new covenant. And we're going to look at this part right here. This is the first kind of stage of the Abrahamic covenant. This first stage is where God gives Abraham the people he promised. So he gives them the Jewish people. They start with 70 going into Egypt, and when they leave, there's thousands upon thousands of them. He gives them a place. He's going to give them the the land of Canaan, um, the entire promised land. And then his presence goes with them. And you guys remember how his presence went with them? At first through a pillar. There's a pillar of fire, pillar of smoke. And then later, he went with them in the tabernacle, which was like kind of like a portable temple. And then later built the temple for him. So God's in this Mosaic covenant, this first stage of the Abrahamic covenant, he's giving them a people, a place, and his presence to go with them. We guys live, of course, in the new covenant. We're going to look at this in a couple of weeks. And in the new covenant, God is taking these promises he's made in the Abrahamic covenant, and he's making them bigger. He's showing how big the promise actually was. These promises are being expanded. They're, they're going global. So the people now are not just the Jewish people, but they're Jews and Gentiles. It's a global people. It's people from every tribe and nation and language. The place he's promised has gone from just being Canaan, the promised land, to when he returns, he's going to make the whole world new. There's going to be the, the, the promised land expanded to cover the whole world, right? And that's, you remember that Abraham was promised a promised land forever, eternal promised land. This is the eternal promised land that's way bigger than he probably ever imagined. And then his presence. In that world to come, his presence will cover the earth like the water covers the sea. And it says in Revelation 21 and 22 that there's no temple there because God himself is their presence and the whole world is the temple that we're going to enjoy. Okay, but what we're working on right now is we're working on the Mosaic Covenant. And the Mosaic Covenant is that first stage of fulfillment. Israel's called to obey God's law out of gratitude. And you can even see that when you read in Exodus 20. Did you notice he started with in verse 2, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. In the next verse, you shall have no other gods before me. It's really cool. As he's, there could be a therefore there almost. I've done this. Now you obey my commands. It's to be done out of gratitude for his covenant of grace. Israel is called to obey out of gratitude, to obey God's laws. And as you read on further, and you guys were probably happy we didn't keep reading, but if you read on further, there's not just the moral commandments, which we we saw first, the moral laws, but later on there's also ceremonial laws, which tell us about the sacrificial system, the priests, the sacrifices, the temple, all those things, the food laws. These are all ceremonial laws. And then there were civil laws, which is interesting. You know, you look through there and there's civil laws. Civil laws like things like if you build a house and it's got an area where you can hang out on top, you should put a rail on that thing because people could fall off and hurt themselves. That's actually in there, by the way. Or if your bull were to like gore somebody, like what should we do? And it's like, well, has he been known to gore people in the past? You know, if he has, and it's going to be a lot worse for you than if this was like a bull that was always nice, you know? 
That kind of thing. So they're all in there. So you've got moral laws, you've got ceremonial laws, and you've got civil laws. The Abrahamic covenant is, is a covenant of grace. Now, the Mosaic covenant is a covenant of law. It's a covenant of works. It was given so that the people, if they kept it, could continue to receive the earthly blessings in the land. And we can see that later on. If you look at Deuteronomy 28, there's this famous list of like, if you obey, all these things will happen. And they're all earthly blessings. You know, your cattle will have lots of babies. And, you know, nobody's going to take over your house and all this stuff. And if you disobey, there was a list of curses, right? And it's like, you know, all your cattle will die and somebody will take your house away and all this stuff will happen, right? So there's these blessings and curses. Now, one thing you got to know about the Mosaic Covenant is it was never intended to be a way of salvation eternally, okay? It was meant to be a way for them to receive earthly blessings or curses. And we'll, we'll get into why that was even made in a little bit, but their, their disobedience would lead to a loss of enjoyment of the people, the place, and the presence that God had promised. And these laws were, of course, never intended to save anyone. It was a relationship of works, and, it, and the consequences for disobedience were death. Now, when you read through the Old Testament, though, you guys notice that God's gracious a lot to his people, right? You wonder, like, well, how does that work? If the Mosaic Covenant is a, a covenant of works, it's a covenant of law, how were they ever, like, blessed? Because they get a lot of grace. A lot of people are like, I don't know about that God of the Old Testament. He's God of wrath. The God of the New Testament's really friendly. And I'm like, have you read it? Have you read, like, Exodus and all these passages? What would you have done with these people? They would have been done. They don't want me, that's for sure. He's super gracious to these people over and over again. The whining, the complaining, it's terrible, right? How do they receive grace? Well, they always receive grace, guys, through the covenant of grace, through the Abrahamic covenant. You'll see that every time they do something bad and they return and, and repent, they always plead not for Moses' covenant. They always plead for Abraham's covenant. There's a really good example of this. You remember what happens when they get in the law? So they get in the law. Moses is getting it up on the mountain. What are the people doing at the bottom? They're making a golden calf. Yeah. So this is like instantly break the covenant, right? Instantly. They don't even have it delivered yet, and they broke it. It's crazy. And when I say break it, it was literally broken. Like Moses comes down the mountain. He sees what they're doing. They're down there making a golden calf and worshiping it. They're worshiping God, supposedly, as a golden calf, which is a really strange thing. And Moses sees it. He's super angry. He does have anger issues, you can see. And he throws the Ten Commandments down. He actually literally breaks them. So the Mosaic Covenant gets broken on arrival, okay? This is not a keepable thing. But notice what they do when, when Moses pleads with God not to destroy him because God's like, you know what? I'll just start over with you. You're doing great. These people are terrible. I'll just start over with you. That'll work. What is Moses, how does Moses plead with the Lord? Take a look at Exodus 32, 13. This is what he says. Notice that he doesn't plead Moses' covenant, the Mosaic Covenant. He says, remember Abraham and Isaac and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and say to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and all this land that I have promised I will give to your offspring and they shall inherit it forever. What's he doing? He said, remember the Abrahamic covenant? Remember the covenant of grace you made? They don't go like, hey, remember, we'll keep the Mosaic covenant. Give us another try. It's like, no. They plead for grace through that. And it says, and the Lord relented the disaster he'd spoken to bring it on them. So how does this relate? How does this relate to Christmas? I mean, Monique and Naim built all this stuff. It was amazing because, you know, Monique was like, hey, can we have some flowers? Oh, yeah, you can clap for that. Yeah, Monique was like, hey, can we get flowers or something? I'm like, yeah, sure. Can we get a little bit of decorations? And then this all arrives. All this. I was like, wow, okay, this is awesome, you know? 
Super cool. I'm super allergic to Bermuda hay, though. But as long as I don't touch it, we're okay. All right. But uh, I was like, is that Bermuda hay? I'm a horse vet. So I was like, is that Bermuda? You know? Hope that's not Bermuda. It's fine. But how does this relate to Christmas? You know, you think about the Mosaic Covenant. It probably seems like the least Christmassy of all covenants. How does it relate? Remember, guys, that the Mosaic Covenant is the, the first stage of the Abrahamic Covenant. The Mosaic Covenant actually points forward to the New Covenant. It shows us how, actually how not, to inherit the New Covenant promises. It actually shows us our need for grace. And we're going to see that. that God gave the Mosaic Covenant, the Old Covenant, to prepare God's people for the New Covenant. Because the Old Covenant passes away, the New Covenant becomes the Covenant now. And the Old Covenant teaches us what exactly would we need to earn these things. If it was by earning, if it was by law and not by grace, what would it take to earn these things? And we can know that by looking at this. Perfect obedience is what it would take. It would take perfect obedience to God's law. Israel's inability to do this over and over again is supposed to show us our inability to earn God's favor by law. So their inability to even earn earthly promises through their law keeping shows us that we have no chance of earning these things through our own law keeping. Their history is a picture of our own inability to earn God's favor by law. That's why it's helpful for us. The, the Mosaic Covenant shows us our need for Christ to inherit the land. The Mosaic Covenant was never intended to save anyone. We know from Galatians 3.24, it says this. Paul says that the law was given as a tutor to lead us to Christ. The law, this law, the Mosaic Covenant, was given as a tutor to lead us to Christ. And you might say, well, like, how does it do that? What are the things? I'm glad you asked. Three ways, of course. The Mosaic Covenant shows God's perfect demand of holiness. It shows God's perfect demand for holiness. We even see that in the reading. That's why I had that longer reading. It's because you see the mountain and the smoke and like, don't even go near it, you'll die. If the animals even touch it, they'll die. You're seeing that God is holy. We are sinners. Our sin separates us from God. And if, if something isn't done about that in this life, we will be separated from him for eternity. And so this covenant shows us that God is holy. And we all know this to some degree. We all know, even if you're not a Christian, even if you're not church-going, even if you don't believe in God, you have, when you're really honest with yourself, you have a sense that you are not living up to some law that you didn't create. Every single human being has a sense that they don't live up to some sort of law that they don't create. And what we try to do is we try to kind of push that down and say like, no, no, I need to like, I'm just too hard on myself and things like that. Or, oh, you're better than you think. And we try to encourage each other and stuff. But we all know, guys, that we don't live up to a standard. And it isn't a standard we made. That's the weird thing about it. Because if we had come up with it, we would live up to it, right? <laughs> like, you don't make a standard you don't live up to. There's a standard in our hearts. And this is actually a, an evidence or a pointer to the existence of God. It's called the moral argument. That you have inside of you a law you didn't make that you don't live up to. We all sense that. And but what we do is we try to suppress it. We try to suppress our unrighteousness before God, and we do it two ways. We'll do it by like taking God's holy standard, His holy law, and kind of trying to push it down. Go like, oh, I think He only requires this, right? And then we take our own righteousness and we try to prop it up, right? And that's what we do to try and close that gap. One of the most common ways that we do it right now in our culture is the gospel of self-acceptance. Okay, there's a gospel of self-acceptance which sounds deceptively like grace, 
very, very deceptively like grace. So the gospel of self-acceptance sounds like grace, but it's actually a way of avoiding the gospel. It sounds like, you know, I just need to learn to forgive myself, okay? I just need to realize I don't have to be perfect. I need to learn to love myself. I need to stop being so hard on myself. Now, there are cases where that applies, but the problem is, is that that bleeds over into our relationship with God and somehow becomes our new standard, you know? It's not grace because it's something you gave to yourself, for one, not from God, and you got it by lowering the standard of holiness and elevating your sense of your own righteousness. And if we bring that before God and we go like, I'm sure God's good with me. I'm kind of hard on myself, though. You know, if I just learned to kind of forgive myself, maybe I'd feel better before God. It's totally circumventing Christ. It's totally circumventing forgiveness. It's totally circumventing sin. The Mosaic Covenant, though, guys, makes God's holiness and our sinfulness extremely clear. That's what it's good for. It makes it extremely clear. God cuts off all of our evasions. We might be like, I'm a pretty good person, you know, and then the Mosaic Covenant comes in, God's law, and you're like, okay, I see the problem very clearly, right? There's an idea called republication. This is for the nerds among us. And the idea is is that the Mosaic Covenant is almost a republishing of the covenant of works. So you remember in the garden that Adam was told, do, you know, just don't eat of this fruit. You know, do this and you will live. Do this and you will die. You know, it was very simple. It was like one thing. That the Mosaic Covenant is to make that clearer by getting into all the little details of our sin, to show us very specifically our sin. So it's, it's like the covenant of works, but made very, very explicit. And what God's law does, and you don't want to resist it in this. You don't want to be like, oh, I'm sure God's, you know, God of grace. Yes, he is. We'll get to that. But first, let the law fully examine you. You know, don't back away from it too soon. Let the law fully examine you. Because what God's doing it, by his law is he's backing you into a corner to where you realize, I need Jesus. And until you've been brought to that place where you just really believe that you're a sinner, like not just that, you know, you're kind of do bad things sometimes, but you're basically better than most people. Like that's not what we're talking about. That before God, a holy God, that you're a sinner until the law backs you into that corner to where you see you need grace, you can't receive Christ. That's why the law is such a gift. Some people might look at the Mosaic covenant and goes, well, that's the bummer covenant, right? Because it's all law. There are no bummer covenants. This is an amazing covenant. It's a helpful covenant because it shows us our need for Jesus. And you know what's cool about it? We don't even need to go through all 613 laws to know we're sinners, do we? It'd be a long message. We could just look at the first 10. Let's do it. Okay, Exodus 20. Take a look. Verse 2. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. So cool. Grace, right? Now gratitude. This is our response. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the waters under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. Okay. These are commandments against uh, worshiping other gods and making idols. And you, as 21st century people, go, well, at least I'm good there. Right? You're probably thinking that. You're like, at least I'm good there. Don't have any idols. Haven't worshipped any other gods. We're good. What else you got? Not so fast. Okay? Idols, guys, we learn from the rest of Scripture, idols are anything that we look to more than God for our significance, comfort, control, pleasure, power or acceptance okay anything you look to more than god for your significance your comfort your control your sense of control pleasure power or acceptance okay you guys worshiped any other gods 
Have any idols? Right? Martin Luther said that we don't ever break commandments 3 through 10 without breaking the first two. That it's our idols, our underlying idols, the things that we're seeking to give us a sense of, of power or control or significance. It's those things that we're seeking that make us do all the things in 3 through 10. Isn't that powerful? So we're not doing well in those. Okay, let me, let me do some more. Verse 7. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Verse 8. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all of your work. Dropping down to verse 12. Honor your father and your mother, that your days will be long in the land that the Lord your God has given you. Verse 13. You shall not murder. You think, well, I haven't done that. Well, we know that Jesus said if, if you even harbor anger against one another, you've already committed murder in your heart. So we've got that one too. You shall not commit adultery. You say, okay, well, I haven't done that. Well, Jesus said, if anyone looks on a woman lustful, with lustful intent, he's already committed adultery in his heart. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. You shall not covet. Now, this one's really hard, right? The other ones mostly look like external actions. This one's a heart one, and it's very common. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not cover your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant, his ox, his donkey, or anything else that is your neighbor's. So how'd you do? You know, how'd you do? How'd you do looking at God's law? You know, you may have thought, well, I've broken a few, I'm sure of that. But then you go through and you find out, like, I probably broken every single one of these, right? Most of us have. This is, this is the blessing of God's law, guys. God's law is a blessing because it shows you so that you really know and believe that you do not have the righteousness you need to inherit the place, the people, and the presence, all the promises of God to come. You don't have it. When you look at God's law, you know you don't have it. And guys, that's a grace. That's a gift. The law is a gift in that sense. If you use it rightly, it's a gift. It's like an MRI, right? An MRI shows you your need for a surgeon, right? You can't do surgery. It can't heal your problem, but it shows you your need, and that's a blessing. It's a blessing to know that you have a problem you cannot fix. In the same way, the law cannot save us, but it can show us where our need is. Take a look at Romans uh, 3.19. It says this, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under law. Listen to the, what this law is supposed to do, and I think it did it for you. So that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world held accountable before God. That's what it's for, right? For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin, right? That's extremely clear. Let me read it again, verse 20. For by the works of the law... No human being will be justified in his sight, for through it comes the knowledge of sin. We were doing some campus evangelism years ago at MSJC, and there was this guy, I think he was like a Coptic Christian or something, and I was talking to him about, you know, how do you know you can be saved? And the guy goes, well, you have to obey the 10 rules. And I was like, 10 rules? He's like, the 10 rules. And I was like, oh, what's the 10 rules? And then I was like, oh, the 10 rules. Okay, 10 commandments, right? And I was like, okay, that's a good start. I said, you know, he's very emphatic. Just do that. Just do the 10 rules. You'll be fine. Just the 10 rules. Very emphatic. And then I said to him, I said, how's that going? And he got a big smile and he goes, nobody's perfect. <laughs> and I was just like, oh my God. And I said, yes, exactly. Look at verse 20. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Right? That's what it's for. And then listen to this. But now the righteousness of God has been manifest apart from the law, though the law and the prophets bear witness to it. 
the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. How do we get righteous? Through Jesus. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption is in Jesus Christ. Now, that guy, when he said, nobody's perfect, okay, you could bring in right there the gospel of self-acceptance. Yeah, that's right, man. Nobody's perfect. Don't worry about it. That's totally circumventing the gospel, right? Because there's no Christ in that. You know, if there's no Christ in it, it's not the gospel, right? So what needs to happen there is to go, yes, you're not perfect. That is a huge problem. There isn't grace outside of Jesus, okay? It isn't like, you know, everybody's kind of cool because nobody's perfect. Anyway, okay. So the Mosaic Covenant shows us our need for a Savior. And what's really cool, guys, in this passage even that we looked at is the Mosaic Covenant shows us also what we need from this Savior. What do we need from this Savior? We need two things. For this Savior needs to be for us two things. He needs to be both a lamb and a law keeper. We can see through the story of Exodus that this Savior needs to be both our lamb and our law keeper. First, he needs to be our Passover lamb that covers over our sins, right? Jesus Christ is the true Passover lamb whose blood covers us. And so that if we take refuge in Jesus, God's judgment just passes right over us. Isn't that amazing? It passes right over us. It must have been so amazing that night to just know that God's judgment was just going to pass right over him. We also need him to be a law keeper. You know, he is the one who's kept the law perfectly for us. It's why Jesus came, right? It's why he came into the world on Christmas. Galatians 4, 4 says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, listen to this, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Guys, the law was fulfilled in Jesus. And what's really cool is that not only did Jesus fulfill the law, and not only does the law show us our need for Jesus, but the law actually shows us what the Messiah would look like. You know, the law actually shows us the identity of the Messiah. When you look at the law, when you read the Ten Commandments, can you think of any person in history, dead or living, or dead and came to life, again, that better fits those Ten Commandments? There's nobody like him, right? You look at the Ten Commandments and you go, there's nobody that's lived God's law so beautifully and so completely. So the law not only helps us to, to know we need Jesus, but the law is actually an amazing description of Jesus. You know, we look at his life and we go, he has lived this. He's lived this so beautifully. This must be the Messiah. God the Son became a man to live under God's law in such a way and to keep it flawlessly in deed and word and in thought. And what Jesus was doing in his life, from you know, growing up all the way to adulthood to the cross, is he was building a perfect life of law-keeping. Theologians call this his, his active obedience. So his passive obedience is his death on the cross for you taking away your sin. His active obedience is him living a perfect life in your place. He's actually building an entire resume. He's building an entire record. Not for himself. He doesn't need one. You know, Jesus didn't need to come down and live a perfect life. Like he had his perfect life already. And there was no need for him to establish his righteousness because he's God himself. Why was he coming? Why did he live that life? You, know, you think when, when he went to get baptized by John the Baptist, and John the Baptist was like, ah, oh, this doesn't make sense. Why am I baptizing you? He said, let me do it to fulfill all righteousness. What was he doing? He was doing every single thing that we ought to do in our place perfectly 
to build us a perfect life of law-keeping so that he could give it to you as a gift. And this is why baby Jesus couldn't die and be your savior. Okay, if Herod was successful, killed Jesus, we couldn't have like a Christianity where we worshiped, you know, speared baby Jesus. Like that wouldn't work. Why? Why wouldn't that work? Well, you know, he died. He's innocent. He died in our place. He paid for our sins. But he didn't live a perfect life of righteousness yet. He only lived a perfect infant righteousness, whatever that would be. I don't know. It gets down a weird rabbit hole. But what he did is he grew up at every stage of his life. He, he met the obligations he had at that stage to keep God's law perfectly. Why? Because he was building a perfect righteousness for you. So that this morning he could say to you, he could look at you in the light of the law and go, man, you've made a wreck of your life. Like when I look at you compared to the law, you've made a wreck of your life. And then he says, but I have this righteousness of mine and you could wear it and it could be yours. He takes it off like he takes a coat, right? And he goes, here, have mine. And then he goes, you look great now. You know, you look just like my life. And that's what he's offering to you in the gospel. If you'll come to him today, he not only removes your sin, but he gives you a coat of his perfect righteousness, his act of obedience imputed to you, credited to you for you to wear. We are, guys, I think this is really important. We are saved by works, but they're Jesus's works, not ours. Okay, you are saved by works, but it can't be yours. It has to be his works that save you. It's his perfect righteousness that's yours. And this is really important because this does distinguish us from a lot of um, cults that have kind of branched off of Christianity. Because a lot of them will teach, oh yeah, Jesus' blood will take away your sin. Like, you have a life that needs to be forgiven. It'll wipe all that away. And then what? And then you build your righteousness, right? Gives you the blank slate but it doesn't give you the perfect life. The imputed righteousness of Christ is how you know the real gospel from something that claims to be Christian. So, you know, the other systems work, okay, yeah, Jesus' blood forgives you, wipes it clean, but then, hey, you better get on it. So you got a righteousness to build before God. But the true gospel, guys, is he wipes our slate clean, and the only righteousness that we ever have is Jesus's. The only righteousness that makes any difference before the throne of God is Jesus' righteousness, always, only Jesus's pretty emphatic, right? And what's really cool, if we go back to the diagram, is we are saved exactly the same way they they were. They were saved by looking forward to the Messiah, right? They were saved by trusting in the covenant of grace, you know, this Messiah promised here and here, right? They were saved by the same covenant of grace as we are. They were saved by looking at the law and seeing their need for Jesus. And so that's how the covenants kind of interact, because you're like, what's this thing for? The Mosaic Covenant, what it does is it would drive these people to know that they needed the covenant of grace. It interacts in that way. For us, we look back at it and we know we need the covenant of grace. Everyone being saved through the true Passover lamb, through the true law keeper. You know, we get his blessings. He took our curses. And, um, and that's how that all interacts. It's as if the Mosaic Covenant is saying, guys, pay attention. <laughs> pay attention. You need this. You need the covenant of grace. So covenant of grace is already here. Mosaic covenant comes in and says, no, seriously, you need grace. That's what it's for. And it's for us for the same purpose. Mosaic covenant, one last thing, also shows us our need for grateful obedience. For grateful obedience. Because remember, Israel was given this law after the Exodus. Okay? Because if it was, if it was purely like you save yourself, it would be God would show up in Egypt, they're slaves, and he would give them the law then. 
He'd say, hey, get on this. You guys do it well, I'll be back. And I'll take you out of here, right? No. He takes them out. They're, they're chosen by grace. He, he frees them from slavery by grace, right? And then he gives them his law as a response, right? As a way of showing their, their gratitude for his grace. And it's the same with us, except we have a lot more to be thankful for, right? We were saved from a much more evil Pharaoh, right? We were saved from a much worse slavery. We were rescued through not Passover lamb blood. We were saved by the blood of the Son of God himself, the one who came at Christmas. And we are now being led by a better Moses to a better promised land. So we got a lot of reasons to live out his law out of gratitude, not to earn his favor, not to earn salvation, but to do it out of gratitude. And and let me look at the law with you real quick, because like, well, what parts apply to us? I'm going to give this to you really quickly. There's three parts. Remember the law? There's the civil part, right? It was meant for running a theocracy, okay? So it's like building codes, bulls goring people, you know, that kind of stuff, right? Accidentally killed someone, you know, it's those kind of laws. Those are for a theocracy. Those don't apply to us, though a lot of our laws are based on those. The ceremonial laws, they all pointed to Christ as the true temple, the true priest, the true lamb of sacrifice. They also point to the full fulfillment of the food laws. Food laws are all about being clean. We know we're clean in Jesus. So the ceremonial law is fulfilled in Jesus. What is still remains for us to keep, and it's his moral laws. We keep his moral laws. Keep things like the Ten Commandments. Why do we keep them if Jesus already kept them? Let me give you three reasons. We keep them because they give us joy to keep them. I think this is something you learn like longer and longer after you're a believer, is that God's law, God's moral commandments are a blessing, and there's joy in keeping them. You guys ever read the psalmist? Oh, how I love your law. I pant after it. Oh, it's like, it's like a honeycomb. Oh, it's like I found treasure. It's like, calm down, man. Like, chill, right? What is it? He loves keeping God's law because he knows it's a path of enjoying God. So we should keep it to enjoy him. We should keep it to love and bless others. Your family will be blessed if you keep God's law, right? They want you to keep it, okay? Turns out that love is guided by law, that God's laws, his commandments are a blessing. They show us how to love one another. And the last thing we we use it for is to love God back, right? Reformers call this the third use of the law, that we, we follow his commands because we love him. Jesus said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. It's not to earn anything. It's not to you know, earn heaven or anything like that. It's to love him back. Ten commandments, you can think of them as his love languages. How does God like to be loved? Like this. No, not, not like that. Like the Ten Commandments. Like the commandments that are in the New Testament. So, and for our good, which I think fits the first one, that we like it. It's enjoyable. It's a blessing to live them. So we, in a couple of weeks, we're going to look at the New Covenant. Um, we're going to see that the law is actually written on our hearts. We're going to see in the New Covenant that the Holy Spirit actually lives within us. So that when we keep the law, guys, it's actually Jesus keeping the law through us. It's Jesus' life in us. So that's where we're going from here. As we take the Lord's Supper, guys, we're celebrating that Jesus is our law keeper. As we take the Lord's Supper, we're celebrating that Jesus is our law keeper. I'm going to have JC come up in just a little bit. But as we take this bread and this cup, we should be remembering the fact that and enjoying the fact that Jesus kept the law in your place. You know, as you take this, you remember that Jesus kept the law in your place. As you take this, you remember that Jesus now keeps his law through you. And um, when we take the Lord's Supper, we're actually not only feeding on a physical bread and cup, but the Holy Spirit is causing Christ to be near to us in such a way that we are blessed by his presence, that we feed on his presence. 
And we're going to enjoy the fact, guys, that we're going to eat with Jesus soon in the kingdom. There's this really cool scene in Exodus 24. It says this, Then Moses and Aaron and Nahab and Abihu and the 70 elders of Israel went up on the mountain. And it says, And they saw the God of Israel. And then it says, There was under his feet, God's, like a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven in clearness. And then listen to this. They beheld God and they ate and drank with him there. Lucky. <laughs> you know, that's going to be us. That's what this tells us. People are like, why is it so small? I wanted a full meal. These are appetizers, guys, of the kingdom to come. We're going to eat and drink with him. And as we take the Lord's Supper, we're drinking to that. Let's pray. Father, we uh, thank you so much for your promise keeping, for your intricate interlocking covenants. It's like an amazing thing, Lord, that you have planned all this out in advance. It's not haphazard. It's beautifully intricate. And we're so thankful for the Mosaic covenant and the way it shows us our need for Jesus. And I think all of us here could just say, yes, I need Jesus. And I pray, Lord, for anyone that's here that has been kind of relying on the gospel of self-acceptance or on their own righteousness or their own religiosity or whatever they're relying on, that they're better than most, that they've been a pretty good person, so of course you'd accept them, Lord. I just pray that the scales have fallen off of their eyes and that they see it's got to be Jesus' righteousness. It's the only way. And we just thank you, Lord, for giving this to us. You, you could have done it. You, know, you could have not offered this. This is grace but you did. We thank you, and you offered it the great cost of your own son. You're so good to us, Lord. Help us as we take the Lord's Supper to truly enjoy and worship you, and help us, Lord, as we sing and worship, that it would be pleasing to you. And we pray, Lord, that in this life, throughout this week, during this season, Lord, that our lives would be a sacrifice of praise. We place in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, you can email us at info at May the Lord bless your week and guide your steps.